Welcome everyone. Welcome. Thanks for joining. We'll be starting promptly at nine. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining. We'll be starting in just a minute.
Okay, let's get started. Welcome everyone, thanks so much for joining. Today, we're really happy to launch one of the flagship products of the National Policies and Strategies Initiative of the CGIAR, the Political Economy and Policy Analysis Sourcebook, fondly known as PEPA. I'm Noreen Karachiwala and I'll be your moderator today. I'm an economist and research fellow at the International Food Policy Research Institute, and I lead a package of work on political economy and impact evaluation under the National Policies and Strategies Initiative. So a couple of housekeeping notes. Please keep your camera turned off to preserve bandwidth. If you have a question, please type it into the chat box Q&A function, and I'll ask your question during the Q&A period. And please also, when you ask the question, note who you would like the question addressed to. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Clemens Breisinger, who is the program leader of the Kenya Strategy Support Program and a senior research fellow in the Development Strategies and Governance Unit at IFPRI. And he is the lead of the National Policies and Strategies Initiative. Clemens is a, uh, <laughs> a very active researcher, policy advocate, and um, excuse me. Um, and he's going to provide the opening remarks today. Over to you, Clemens. All right, thank you, Noreen, for this nice introduction. Good uh, afternoon from Kenya and uh, hello, everyone. Uh, thanks for joining the launch of the Political Economy and Policy Analysis, or shortly, uh, PEPA uh, sourcebook today. It's my pleasure to kick this meeting off with a PEPA talk. And what I'm going to do is to emphasize why the PEPA sourcebook developed under the CGIAR initiative on national policies and strategies is a really important and timely innovation. The National Policies and Strategies Initiative, or NPS in short, is designed to support partner governments in building policy coherence sharing analytical tools and capacity like PEPA, for example, and co-creating demand-driven policy responses. As a result of MPS, the capacity shared and the evidence provided to decision makers is affecting lives of millions of people in Africa, Asia, and in Latin America. For MPS, as well as other efforts that aim at informing policymaking with evidence, be it by national think tanks or international organizations, understanding the political economy context is of paramount importance. It can greatly help the uptake of research-based recommendations by policymakers. The PEPA source book that we are launching today will help to disentangle and to analyze political economy contexts related to agri-food systems and beyond. PEPA brings together a collection of frameworks, analytical tools, and methods. It organizes political economy resources at multiple levels, at country and regional levels, at sector levels, at program level, at 
for cross-cutting uh, issues as well. Collectively, the source book provides approaches to answering key questions relevant to inclusive agri-food system transformation, such as who are the influential actors driving policy processes and programs, what ideas, beliefs, and narratives shape crises and policy responses, what are the windows of opportunities for reform and policy change, what factors drive the effectiveness of policy implementation, and many more. PEPA comes at a critical time where government budgets are stretched to the limits and addressing unprecedented challenges require new out-of-the-box solutions. For example, governments are approaching MPS researchers with questions such as why domestic food prices remain stubbornly high despite lower world food prices, increases in fertilizer subsidies, and relatively good local harvests? The answer can often be found in incoherent policies where, in this case, the potential positive impact of fertilizer subsidies is offset by a simultaneous increase in fuel taxes and levies. PEPA will be very useful for unbundling and shedding more light on such policy incoherence. It will also enable policy analysts, students, policymakers, and development partners to explore policy solutions that address other structural weaknesses in the policy environment. Weaknesses that are often derailing efforts to transform food, land, and water systems, and to achieve sustainable development goals. There are at least two important next steps for the National Policies and Strategies Initiative and its partners in 2024 and beyond. First is to scale up the co-creation of PEPA-based analysis in partner countries to improve policy coherence. And second, to integrate PEPA-based tools in national think tanks and as part of university curricula. I'm looking forward to this exciting and important agenda. Let me conclude by thanking all our national and international partners, all the CGIER funders, and last but not least, Jonathan and Danielle and their team for putting this timely and innovative PEPA sourcebook together. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Clemens. So now we'll move to the main event, the presentation of the PEPA Sourcebook. And this book is authored by Jonathan Mockshell, Danielle Resnick, Godfrey Alumo, Maria Blanco, and Alan Nichol. The two main authors, Jonathan and Danielle, will be presenting today. Um, Jonathan is a research scientist, sorry, um, and senior agricultural economist at the Alliance of Biodiversity and SEAT, and he co-leads the work package three of the CGIAR initiative on national policies and strategies. His research focuses on agri-food system economics, 
political economy, and policy environments with a view to generating evidence-based insights for supporting agri-food systems transformation. His research and policy engagement work involves projects in Africa, Asia, Europe, and the Americas. His research and I'm sorry, before joining SIET, he was a researcher at the now German Institute of Development and Sustainability and the University of Hanheim. I'll turn it over to you, Jonathan. Thank you, thank you, Noreen. Um, can you all see my slides? Yes, we can. Michael, I'm wondering, can you please uh, load the slides from your end? Yeah, loading it. Okay, thank you. Perfect. Great. So thank you, um, Clemens, for that great introduction to our political economy analysis source book. And Michael, next slide, please. We know that agri-food systems is facing a number of critical challenges. And those challenges can be seen at the national level and also at the international level. The COVID crisis is one of them. And apart from that, we are living in an era where the post-COVID crisis is having multiple effects on food systems. We have other internal conflicts uh, that is also aggravating some of the challenges we see uh, within agri-food systems. Some of them are structural and others are governance related. All stakeholders, uh, development partners, researchers, development practitioners are asking for a need to move away from the current food systems, evolve it to something that serves the needs of all stakeholders, including smallholder farmers. So the need to transition from the current food systems and move it to one that builds resilience within households are something that all stakeholders are promoting. And what we see currently is that there are a number of political economy factors um, and influences that we know that affects the success and often the failure of development interventions. And in most cases, what we see is a move to develop new technologies. And some of these new technologies are also having implications within farm households without the right political economy driver. We see that there is a number of enabling conditions also that are very important for food systems and political economy drivers, which is often neglected in the development of most interventions. And the need to have more evidence, solid evidence that will help reform the reform is something that we are calling for, and this should be a priority. 
quite often this question that comes to mind is what works where and why? Next slide, please. And this was other contested and policy related questions uh, within the food system. For example, what are the merits of agroecology versus sustainable agriculture intensification for climate mitigation and adaptation co-benefits? What institutional innovations are best fit for managing common pool natural resources to avoid conflicts and foster inclusion? What are the implications of a trickle-down program versus a bottom-up program in the governance and devolution structures of a digital innovation ecosystem? And finally, what are the factors driving the effectiveness of policy implementation following reform decisions? Next slide. So while we know that there are a number of ways to answer these questions, quite often what we see in the literature and also in development work is to provide a quick analysis. And in the literature, it focuses more on the rational choice approach uh, based on classical economics. And what we see quite often neglected is the political economy and policy analysis lens. And some of the reasons is that there is fragmentation of the frameworks and methods and approaches. Um, some of the measurements are very vague without any key indicators that can be replicated and also the lack of external validity. So there's a growing number of frameworks that we see that is aiming at solving this challenge. One of them is the TIPS, which is a source book uh, from the World Bank, um, focusing mainly on operations. The second one is the political economy analysis in development policy operations. And then a more recent one, understanding political economy analysis and thinking and working politically. And finally, the kaleidoscope model of policy change. All these frameworks have given us a lot of information and has also helped to improve political economy analysis with regards to food systems. Next slide. However, what we see as a, big, a major problem or knowledge gap is that there is no source book that brings together frameworks, analytical tools, and case studies focusing on food, land, and water systems. In our pathway to contribute to solving this problem, we conducted a systematic review using the PRISMA approach, where we looked at an initial database of our 1,200. And then within this database, based on our inclusion and exclusion criteria, we came out with over 60 different articles, which is spread across the different parts of the world. Next slide. And based on this analysis and putting the information together, we came out with the paper source book. Political Economy and Policy Analysis Sourcebook, PIPA for short. So the question is, what is PIPA? PIPA is a smart tool for answering policy questions critical for food systems transformation across food and nutrition, land and water, climate and ecology domains. What are the main features that PIPA brings on? So rather than having just individual frameworks or a source book, which doesn't focus on food systems in this context, food, land, and water, what PIPA brings together is frameworks, 
analytical tools, methods, case studies, step-by-step how to guide, and an add-on which we call the PIPA micro-simulation tool. So what is different about the PIPA compared to what we have already? Is a collection of these different features into one source book. Next slide. So let's take a deep dive into the main features, the frameworks, analytical tools across food, land, and water. Next slide. So first, based on our literature review and extensive analysis, we established a simple framework in order to be able to organize the vast majority of information that we have. So we classify this into four different dimensions. The first is to look into what we call the policy domains. And that policy domain looks at three different areas, food and nutrition, land and water, climate and ecology. The second level is to look into how this has been applied across different levels. And we classify this into macro, meso, micro, and multi. The third part is to look into what are the frameworks that align to each domain and each level. And then what are the tools that relate to the frameworks? So all the green boxes, what we see here represents the frameworks and then the orange represents the tools. So for example, if you look at a specific problem within the food and nutrition domain, one example of a framework is the advocacy coalition framework. If we look into the land and water, within the macro, for example, one framework is to look into institutional analysis and development. And within climate and ecology, one framework is to look at the kingdom's window of opportunity. And the related tool here is the multi-stakeholder influence mapping and power mapping tools. Next slide. So looking into the food and nutrition domain, when we move um, from the center, uh, moving outward, we see the food and nutrition domain, the micro level tools and frameworks, the meso level food um, tools and framework, the macro level tools and framework, and the multi-level tools and framework. So for example, within the multi-level, a tool is the power mapping and a framework is a kaleidoscope model of policy change. And then within the micro, we have the agent belief design intention model as a tool and then a framework for recognizing diversity beyond capitalism. Next slide. So we didn't just stop at presenting those different frameworks, but rather providing an additional information with a description of each framework and how this framework has been used, and also the source for getting additional information about the framework. So the Kaleidoscope model, for example, we have the description as having 16 different policy variables, and then the use is analyzing policy and multi-levels. And then we have the political sentiment analysis tool, for example, framework, for example. And this, it focuses on underlining power arrangements in institutions, assesses political will to determine feasible policies and involves four different steps. First, systematically mapping all key actors, identifying their interests, 
recognizing their forms of power in political economy and social and ideological, understanding the stakeholders' relationships, and finally, appreciating the issues, narratives, ideas. And my colleague, Daniel, who would do the second presentation will touch on this. Let's move to the next slide. So taking the kaleidoscope model of policy change as an example, and applying that to a case study of agricultural inputs, subsidies, and vitamin A fortification in Zambia, the main evidence that we synthesize and how that can apply to other analysis is that it provides core indicators and measurements that allow for replication. It has analytical tools for researchers and practitioners. It provides insight for policy engagement and also assesses when and where investment in policy reforms is most likely to have an impact. Next slide, please. So let's take a second example, climate and ecology policy domain. Within the climate and policy, ecology policy domain, uh, we have the same format moving from the middle part to outside, we, to the external. We have the micro-level tools, um, the driver strategy outcome as a framework. And then within the macro level, we have tools such as process network, discourse analysis, and then a framework such as biodiversity policy integration. Next slide. It also provides descriptions of all the different frameworks at the macro level, meso and multi-level and provides additional references and also how this can be used. So multiple streams framework as a specific example, this in terms of description is a diagnostic framework considers policymaking as a series of steps. And there are four different steps here also, agenda setting, alternative specification, authoritarian selection, and implementation. And the use is analyzing climate, policy integration, and also to enhance public policymaking. And there are other frameworks such as the biodiversity policy integration and social ecological assistance framework with their description and use. Next slide. So a specific case study here is the policy window of opportunity. Um, the characteristics of this framework is that it has three different streams. The problem, the policy and political streams to create a window of opportunity when it all comes together. And it creates opportunity for reforms and policy change if these windows come together and a policy entrepreneur is able to push specific issues above the agenda setting. So the insights that can be drawn using this framework provides evidence that is relevant to achieve real change. And in this context, all actors must establish a political alliance or political alliances, build coalition and gain credibility with decision makers in order for change to happen. Next slide. So what are the steps in applying the PIPA? Six steps. Using ultra-processed food as a case study, for example, we start with the main problem, which is ultra-processed food, the prevalence of that. The second is questions of interest. So what are the reasons for the prevalence of ultra-processed food? Or why do we have so much ultra-processed food in the market? The third step is to select the frameworks and based on those frameworks, go to data gathering, synthesize those results and package the evidence. Next slide. So rather than just going ahead, what we want to do is to be able to provide a tool that helps this step. 
And so this tool is powered by AI at the background. And based on this, we have all the six different steps. So once you decide on the policy problem, you come with specific question, you decide on the framework and analytical tools, the data source, automatically you'll be able to receive some form of guidance that gives you how this tool can be used or the framework, uh, the type of analysis that can be conducted and how to synthesize this. And this is going to be an add-on to our paper source book. Next slide. So bringing all this together, the paper source book is a smart tool for policy action. And what is different is that it brings together a collection of frameworks, analytical tools, methods, case study example, step-by-step -step how to guide, and an add-on, which is a micro simulation tool. And this will be very relevant for researchers, development practitioners, and policymakers to have a tool that is smart enough to be able to respond to policy demands to support policy decision-making. Next slide. So using this tool, we would want to thank all our supporters and colleagues who have helped us. And if you have any questions, please um, reach out to Daniel or myself. Over to you, Noreen. Thanks so much, Jonathan. That was extremely interesting. I've watched with great interest. With that, I'd like to introduce our next speaker. Danielle Resnick is a senior research fellow at IFPRI's Washington DC office in the Development Strategies and Governance Division. She's a political scientist whose research interest areas include political economy of agricultural development, decentralization, urban governance, informality, and democratization. And she has a regional specialization in Sub-Saharan Africa. Prior to joining us at IFPRI, she held a two-year fellowship at the Brookings Institute. Welcome back, Danielle. We're so happy to have you back, and I'll pass it on to you for your presentation. Okay, thanks so much, Noreen. Um, and thanks so much to Jonathan for that great overview of uh, the PEPA source book um, and really highlighting the niche that it's intended to fill. I'm going to talk briefly about one of the frameworks that Jonathan briefly alluded to. This is the political settlements framework, and I'll discuss how we've tried to apply it looking at value chain issues, specifically in the case of Kenya. And the intention is really to show how you know, the various frameworks and approaches that are in PEPA do not need to be used in isolation of each other or in isolation of economic and sociological frameworks. They can really be combined in novel and eclectic ways to provide a more holistic understanding of policy opportunities and bottlenecks. So this work I'm gonna talk about today was supported by USAID. Um, it was done in collaboration with Steve Hagblade and Isaac Minde at Michigan State University and Mercy Kamau at Tegameo Institute in Kenya. So next slide, please, Michael. We were um, really motivated by a question that we, we were asked by USAID, which is really what are the key political economy bottlenecks that are hindering large-scale agricultural transformation in Kenya? Um, the assumption was that Kenya has a lot of the, the right conditions, uh, the right enabling environment in many respects for kind of broad-based agricultural transformation. And yet we nonetheless see a lot of policy volatility um, and policy, uh, policy bottlenecks and a suspicion that political economy dynamics were part of the reason for that. Um, so we specifically looked at three value chains amongst the many um, that are important in Kenya. We looked at beef, sorghum, and fruits and vegetables. 
We chose those because those had been priority value chains um, under the big four agenda of the previous administration. We also chose them because they have been seeing growing domestic demand over recent years that cannot be met by domestic supply. So there's, there's a real challenge for productivity amongst those value chains. Um, at the same time, they have quite a bit of geographical variation in terms of where they're produced and a lot of variation in terms of their economic uh, concentration. And so we were trying to understand, you know, what, what political economy dynamics are specific to uh, agricultural value chains and which are more cross-cutting and more uh, specific to the, the broader political and institutional context in which value chain policies are being decided and implemented. We focused specifically on the 2013 to 2022 period uh, because this was a period of major institutional changes in the country. As some of you may know, joining today, that was you know, really the period of implementation of Kenya's constitutional reform, um, particularly the fourth schedule, uh, devolving agriculture and also livestock responsibilities to the 47 county governments. So big institutional shift as well. In terms of methods, we use qualitative, qualitative approaches. Uh, we started with three virtual focus groups with value chain experts. And then we had more than 40 semi-structured interviews on the ground in Kenya with uh, governments, private sector, civil society, consumer group, and other types of uh, stakeholders familiar with the three value chains. Next slide, please, Michael. So before going into some of the findings uh, from the work, I want to take a step back and just highlight some key features of this political settlements framework. And I'm talking about it today because of all the many frameworks presented in the PEPA source book, this is probably the one that most predominantly falls within the, the political science discipline. And it really comes out of peace and security studies. Um, and so it can show how, you know, even a framework such as this can be used to offer some insights for food, land, and water system policies. Um, it was really popularized by Mush.com at SOAS University, and it referring to the underlying distribution of decision-making power in a particular uh, polity. It has two key dimensions to it. One is the horizontal settlement. This refers to the distribution of power across elite factions that are comprising a governing coalition. So when we think of elites, we can be thinking about uh, presidents, prime ministers, governors, mayors, legislatures, uh, military actors in some cases, or traditional leaders. Um, and it, the framework recognizes that these, these factions don't always have equivalent power. There's some who are in an inner circle who are really the decision makers, and there's some that are more excluded. They're in the outer circle. And the relationship between these inner and outer factions has really important implications for policy stability or volatility more broadly. In addition, there's a vertical dimension to the political settlement. And the vertical settlement is looking to the way in which different societal groups, whether farmers associations, trade unions, women's groups, um, how they're incorporated and managed by different elites. Uh, and that the way that they're incorporated often depends on their, what's called their disruptive potential. Um, the way in which they can push forward to have their, their different claims on policy issues heard um, and, and how broadly based they are, how concentrated they are and their disruptive potential um, really influences the way in which elites react. Do they try to co-op them and give them some certain policy concessions? Concessions? Do they try to repress them or do they even marginalize them? They're not really very vocal or have much power and so therefore they're ignored. So we take this component of the political settlements framework and we layer it onto other different uh, frameworks that are appropriate for better understanding value chain decisions. Next slide, please, Michael. 
So you can see kind of highlighted in red towards the right-hand side of this diagram is where we've kind of superimposed these dimensions of the political settlement, both the horizontal settlement and the vertical political settlement. And we start first with traditional thinking about value chains and looking at the various actors um, in the value chains and assessing their distribution of power themselves, um, who has marketing power between producers, traders, processors, retailers, exporters, and consumers. Um, and what, what uh, power do they have within the vertical political settlement? That may be determined through, uh, you know, their how broad based they are. This may be um, their their importance for votes. Um, it may be in terms of, you know, company contributions to party um, parties, political parties, and maybe because there's a close overlap between political and business elites in a particular agricultural value chain. But we also recognize from collective action theory and organizational theory that lobbying bodies also make a really big influence in terms of um, how and when voices are heard. Um, so we look at kind of, you know, how confederated different, different unions may be, um, their resource base themselves. Can they afford per diems to take MPs, you know, out, out for lunches to, to advocate their particular, their policy decisions? And then we also look at a lot of public administration and bureaucratic theory um, in terms of looking at the degree of conflict or cooperation within um, uh, bureaucratic ministries, agencies, and even subnational departments that typically provide oversight um, and monitoring and evaluation of policy implementation. We also know from some of the, the thinking about embedded autonomy of, of bureaucracies um, that in certain cases, particularly when there is uh, fractionalization within the horizontal political settlement, that that can affect political interference in the bureaucracy and affect policy implementation. So this is the broader um, way in which we have been able to, to layer different types of frameworks uh, talked about in PEPA. Next slide, please. I certainly don't have time today to go into the findings um, of, of those different dimensions for the three value chains I talked about. Um, I'll just briefly note with respect to beef, some of the key takeaway messages that we have in our, in our broader paper. Um, one is, you know, looking within the beef value chain in Kenya, there's a lot of a lot of actors involved. They're very fragmented and very low levels of trust with each other. Um, we found that the, the concentration of market power in terms of information and influencing prices is really coming from brokers, wholesalers and ranchers, ranchers in particular, who are, are much more export oriented. Um, lobbying efforts have been relatively uncoordinated. Uh, there are several different bodies that represent livestock interests, but they're relatively uncoordinated. Um, many of the, the issues that they're concerned about that have been embedded in different parliamentary bills, like the livestock marketing bill, have frequently stalled. Um, political leverage varies dramatically amongst the actors in the value chain. It's very high for ranchers because there is actually a very high overlap between uh, politicians and, and ranchers. Um, it's very low for pastoralists, who you might have noticed from my first screen actually comprise the largest share of production for, for the livestock sector, but nonetheless have very low marketing information and are quite weak um, in terms of political leverage. Um, there's been a number of issues within the bureaucracy in recent years in terms of, of oversight and implementation of livestock and beef policy. Um, most you know, notably, there has been a, a, a bit of a contentious decision um, under the previous administration to move authority for the Kenya Meat Commission to the military under the Kenya Defense Forces. There's also been contention between ministries of agriculture and health over where does food safety for livestock actually sit. 
And then across all three of these value chains, um, the horizontal political settlement has really affected um, decision making. Uh, one thing that was noted quite often was fractionalization among the elites after the Building Bridges Initiative. Um, that led to uh, a lot of a lot of tension, um, both uh, within ministries and um, across MPs, uh, and led to a lot of the stalling of parliamentary decision making. Also, through devolution, we saw growing uh, political power of the governors, the 47 governors, who each uh, decided to charge their own agricultural cess rate as produce was moved from, from the farm to markets, and that created a lot of inefficiencies within uh, the different value chains. Next slide, please. So just to conclude, um, this, this slide is just intended to show the broader value of embedding a political lens into policy recommendations. Um, we have a very lengthy list of this in, in our uh, policy paper. Um, but the main takeaway here is that we're offering policy recommendations, but then what you see highlighted in the red box is also thinking about the political feasibility of those policy recommendations. That's highlighted in, in um, the political feasibility column. Um, and then thinking about what interventions are actually needed to improve that political feasibility so that those policy recommendations can actually be implemented. And I think this is the broader contribution that we can think about with, with PEPA and other types of frameworks is that we're not just looking at the technical costs and benefits, but what's kind of the best fit given the underlying political and institutional context. Uh, last slide, please, Michael. If you want to know more about this work, there's a lot more detail I can't go into today, but please feel free to reach out and you can also um, download the paper at the website you see here. Uh, let me turn back to you, Noreen. Thank you. Danielle, thank you so much for that. I really enjoyed it. Um, so uh, we're now going to have some remarks from Marcella Quintero, who is a senior director of food systems and transformation science group of the CGIAR. And she's the associate director general research strategy and innovation for the Alliance of Biodiversity and CIET. She's an ecologist at the Universidad Naviera in Colombia and holds a PhD from the Department of Agronomy at the University of Florida. She has occupied several leadership positions as the ecosystem services theme leader and agrosystems and sustainable life landscapes research director at CIET. Most recently as the multifunction of the CGIAR Agroecology Agro Initiative. Remember everyone that you can type your questions into the Q&A option, which can add the uh, chat bubbles icon. Okay, can you hear me well now? Over to you, Marcella. Okay, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Okay, perfect. No, thank you very much. And thanks also for the presentation from uh, Jonathan and Daniel. And I think this, this, this uh, paper source book is very timely. And let's remember what is at stake. So, I mean, uh, right now agriculture is in the middle of a big puzzle that we need to work on to try to kind of uh, see how in agriculture and our efforts there can help us to make progress on reducing food insecurity and also in reducing uh, the impact of agriculture in the planet. So basically what we know is that 
front, um, uh, we, we have kind of, of um, erased the progress that we made when we were reducing people insecurity, food insecurity. So right now we have 180 million more people facing severe food insecurity uh, that, than in 2019. So there is a lot of extent right now. And uh, so it means agriculture, as I said, is in the middle of that puzzle, but it's a dynamic puzzle. So when we try to see how we make agriculture a sector that is sustainable, but also that fits the world, it means that it's not only about technologies, but it's also about, as was pointed out by Jonathan and Daniel, that it's about actors, it's about coalitions, it's about ideas and networks that at the end contribute to shape uh, our current food systems. So it means that uh, now we need to rethink those visions, those food systems kind of developing common visions across different actors and in the different countries. So I think um, this Pepa source book uh, is, is, is extremely useful, providing us frameworks, analytical tools, and case studies to help us think okay, how we bring all those different pieces together, the actors, the coalitions, the networks, the information, to understand what are those windows of opportunities that we as researchers, but also with our partners that are from uh, development partners, practitioners, and et cetera, those windows of opportunities that we have to make those changes in the food systems in the countries. So uh, I, I really uh, want to emphasize the, the, the added value of this uh, paper source book in, in that sense. And I think it's, it's also very timely and now talking more from the perspective of the CIR because in the CIR we are committed to do system transformation, food system transformation. But then I was talking with, with Jonathan and he was reminding me that proverb of Africa that says, if you want to go fast, you go alone, but if you want to go far, you go together. And it also means uh, also in the way we are seeing innovations in the food system. So if we want to transform food systems only with uh, the, the delivery of technologies alone, probably we are going to go fast, but not very far. So it really needs to be combined with understanding what are the political economy uh, drivers and the social implications of policies and program implementation at the national and local government levels. And talking about national and local levels, I, I really like this application that Daniel just presented because it's also at the national and local level where that transformation occurs what is more tangible and also where we can measure if we are really contributing to sustaining uh, the planet, if we are also reducing food insecurity, and also if we are uh, making also our food people uh, more, more have a better livelihoods. So, so uh, and in that sense, I would like also to congratulate, congratulate the National Policies Strategy Initiative because it's really that focus and that level of intervention that is looking at is that uh, transformation at the no national and local levels. The other thing I want to highlight is something that Jonathan said regarding, um, you know, the bottom up approaches. And for example, and you mentioned agroecology, Jonathan, as well. And in agroecology, we also talk about, you know, improving the, the agency of farmers and local actors when we are talking about solutions to transform positively their systems. 
And if this paper source book and the frameworks, the analytical tools and that it contains can help us to support this, I think this is going to be super important because farmers alone cannot make the change. But if we help to understand what are those political drivers that are behind, for example, uh, extension service in a country and how probably we can work together with those other actors to deliver uh, effective extension services to those farmers. And then those extension services, vice versa, also collect the needs of the farmers. Then I think we are making progress. So, so I think for the CIR, it's extremely important to start thinking on this, on political economy, what are the drivers, what are the determinants, what are the different interests of the different actors. And if we have better uh, sources to understand and, and tools to understand how those interests come together and how we can support the development of common visions of food systems at the national and local level, I think that's already a, a good progress for us at researchers that work for development and also on increasing the sustainability of our food systems. So with this, I don't want to take more of the time here. I also actually would like uh, to pass the floor to you back because uh, in the next panel, we are going to have the opportunity to listen on concrete examples of doing uh, policy analysis and political economy analysis on a specific countries and, uh, and at that scale. So with this, uh, again, I congratulate the, the initiative and also Jonathan and Daniel for this uh, book. Thank you. Thank you so much, Marcella. And you've just done part of my job in introducing the panel. Uh, so I'm just gonna uh, introduce all of the panel members. So first we have Antonia Sindine, who is a professor of political science and international relations. And she is the first female director general of the Nigeria Institute of Social and Economic Research. We applaud her for that. Uh, her research in interests include public sector government, government politics, politics and elections in Nigeria, gender issues and socioeconomic development and good governance. Next, we will have Jamie Morrison, who is the senior advisor of policy and external relationships at the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition, which is GAIN. He brings more than 25 years of experience in the provision of research, capacity development, and technical assistance on the impact of trade and economic policy on processes of agricultural development and food systems transformation. We will next hear from Marco Sanchez Canjito, Cantijo, sorry, who is the Deputy Director of the Agri-Food Economics Division at the Food and Agriculture Organization in Rome, where he leads the team that produces the flagship report, The State of Food Security and Nutrition in the World. He also conducts quantitative policy research and analysis. Finally, we'll hear from Binyam Ayub, who is a senior policy advisor at the Feed the Future Office of Policy Analysis and Engagement Bureau for Resilience, Environment and Food Security at the U.S. Agency for International Development. Over to you, Antonia. Okay. Good morning and thank you very much. Uh, I want to apologize that uh, 
I did not succeed to share my uh, short presentation with the team. I have actually been uh, on the move in the last uh, 10 days or so. Uh, so I'll just um, read what I have, but I have a presentation which I can uh, share with Jonathan later. So as is about case studies, I hope you can hear me. Yes, we can hear you well. Okay. So, and I'm going to be talking about the Nigerian policy environment. Uh, say first that us is one that is fraught with several challenges that make the execution and continuity of development policies uh, often difficult. And one of, the, one of those challenges is that there's a big disconnect between evidence and policymaking in Nigeria. One finds that irrespective of the fact that evidence comes forth through scientific process and oftentimes may be credible, it will not always inform policy because of political expediencies. Consequently, the political economy factors uh, need to be taken into account in analyzing evidence in order to inform policy and decision-making. Uh, political economy factors to consider would include structural and foundational factors such as historical antecedents and cultural strongholds in, Niger in the Nigerian context. Uh, it's such a diverse nation. Uh, some of the things you can do in some parts, you may not be able to do in some parts. So you can't have, for instance, um, a one size fits all agricultural policy. Uh, the other are institutions, formal and informal rules that guide actions and decision making. And uh, a third uh, factor for me will be incentives and how these affect the positioning of stakeholders in the policies uh, space. Um, political economy factors are critical in analyzing the feasibilities for policy implementation and reform. So the way we apply PEPA to the Nigerian policy environment is to integrate the approach into research and data analysis. By this, the results and the accompanying recommendations that emerge from research uh, will most likely be politically smart and more likely to be useful in the policy space. As uh, Jonathan and his colleagues have pointed out, uh, when PE factors are ignored in policy analysis, development outcomes will be slow in coming. We have uh, classic examples in the in oil and gas industry, as well as in the electricity value chain in Nigeria. The, the, these were sectors where that illustrated how strong vested interests could influence the way institutions are structured and could constitute strong roadblocks to change and policy reform. So even when the evidence from research points to a particular solution, cultivating pathways to the solution point can be very tedious and frustrating. Uh, a success story, uh, though short-lived, during the agricultural transformation agenda was when the fertilizer subsidy program seemed to have achieved 
a wide reach across farmers. However, some strong interest groups had to be circumvented while the rules of access were also modified to favor target beneficiaries directly. The success could not be sustained, however, once the change champion, the then Minister of Agriculture, left the scene. This is uh, one of the reality that we need to deal with in Nigeria's development space. I think that PEPA can help us to uncover the non-obvious factors that are often at play beneath the surface of things. In terms of how PEPA can be applied to policy making, I think that um, we need to have a handshake between researchers, policy analysts, and policymakers. As long as these groups are working in silos, insights drawn from PEPA may not be used to inform uh, policy. On our part at NISA, the Nigerian Institute of Social and Economic Research, we have attempted to reach out to other groups using policy dialogue and policy engagement platforms. And we are still keeping up this effort with the hope that it yields uh, desirable outcomes. Trust building between these groups is critical for uh, progress. Uh, also, we have, um, because we conduct evidence-based policy analysis on different aspects of socioeconomic issues, I guess that is it for me to stop. <laughs> yes, why don't you finish your sentence though? Okay, I... I had a concrete example. There was um, a RUGA initiative, which was meant to, um, um, I mean, to help address the problem of incessant farmer header clashes in Nigeria. Uh, it was meant to see the creation of reserved communities in all states. However, the way the program was designed was a clear case of focusing on solution rather than addressing the problem. People saw it as a way to give land to particular ethnic and religious groups and so forth. Uh, the states that make up the federation did not buy into it because of the Land Use Act that uh, has vested interests and all of that. So we see potential for PEPA in addressing issues of uh, uh, development especially agricultural development base. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Antonia. We'll next move on to uh, Jamie Morrison. Please, over to you. Thank you, Noreen, and, and hello to everybody. So first of all, many congratulations to the authors of this source book, which I think is not only a very helpful collection of approaches for analyzing the policy context, and for identifying potential bottlenecks to policy change. But by demonstrating how they can be applied should also help us to amplify the importance of actually using these approaches. And I think that's a big gap. As, as the source book, source book demonstrates, there are many different frameworks, approaches available, but we're not really seeing them applied to the extent that they need to be. So at GAIN, we're in the early stages of implementing a five-year multi-donor funded project called Nourishing Food Pathways. And this is supporting governments in 11 countries across Africa and Asia 
to take forward processes of food system transformation. And we use the food systems pathways developed in the run-up to the UN Food Systems Summit in um, 2021 as a basis for that engagement. We have policy advisors who are working very closely with their national conveners um, and associated governance structures to try to identify policy gaps and areas of policy misalignment that are constraining impactful food system transformation and to help to strengthen the decision-making processes in a way that a food system approach can be effectively adopted instead of just talked about. So we've worked over the past few months with our policy advisors and with great support from Daniel Resnick to help them to start to identify political, the potential political economy strengths to strengthening these decision-making processes. And as the next st stage, the work will scope out some of the viable options um, to help policy advisors and governments um, that they're supporting to navigate these potential bottlenecks. And I believe that the source book will provide a very valuable um, resource in, in that regard. In, in terms of um, what we're finding in relation to policy engagement around food system transformation, one question that we keep being asked, um, by particularly by ministries of agriculture, is in advocating for a food system approach, what is the difference between agricultural transformation and food system transformation? Um, ministries of agriculture who are asking the question have often traditionally been mandated to take forward processes of agricultural transformation, but now they're being asked to steward the food system transformation process. And that's a significant change. And I think there's still a lot of questions that political economy analysis can help us um, think through in terms of providing guidance uh, to governments in that respect. Uh, in a recent um, blog, Lawrence Haddad and I tried to explain the difference between agricultural transformation and food system transformation and why that matters. And there were a number of aspects which point to the importance of better understanding political economy issues. I think, yeah, the first is that processes of food system transformation require coordinated action and investment of multiple actors if food systems are to deliver multiple outcomes. And this throws up a, a large number of questions that could be informed by the approaches um, detailed in the source book. For example, how can coordinated action best be incentivized? How can policy coherence be improved where the outcomes of those policies fall under the mandates of multiple ministries? What support is required to overcome constraints, including reducing fragmentation and improving horizontal coordination between sectors? And I think really importantly in the context of food system transformation, how can subnational levels of government be better linked to the national um, policy-making processes. A second point that comes through quite strongly, I think, is, is decisions around the sequencing of interventions, which becomes much more acute when we're looking at food system transformation as opposed to simply agricultural transformation. And uh, it reminded me of some work that I did with a colleague, Andrew Dorwood, um, for FAO about 25 years ago now, where we argued that success in agricultural transformation had been characterized by the sequential alleviation of constraints that were holding back productivity improvements. 
But what we find with food system transformation is that we need to look at prioritization of action across many different sectors, which each have a different levels of influence in political and budget allocation process, making that issue of thinking through sequencing of, of policy um, as a way of navigating um, bottlenecks much more difficult. And then just one final point, so I realize I've heard my chime. Um, related to the above, budget allocation mechanisms, mechanisms will need to change if resources are to follow priorities. And at present, we know very little about how budgets are actually being allocated to achieve different food systems outcome, making it difficult to advocate for that change. And I think this is something that we hope to shed light on working with IFAD and the World Bank as we try to map out public ODA and private sector allocations to food systems. So thank you, back to you, Noreen. Thank you so much, Jamie. We're now going to move over to Marco, over to you. Thank you, thank you very much. Uh, and thank you, thank you, thank you very much. Uh, and thank you for the opportunity to, to provide some, some thoughts about uh, the, the paper source book. First of all, of course, I join my 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 uh, co-panelists in, in congratulating the uh, authors of this report. I think when I looked at it, I was I was really getting more and more interested in the way uh, granularly the the source book gets into into the key issues. And at the end of the day, uh, one of the conclusions that made that make up in my mind was uh, you know how accounting for uh, political economy analysis. It's a great opportunity for 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 all of us to improve scientific knowledge acceptance. Uh, so, particularly in the case of people like me that work on quantitative analysis, uh, this is an excellent opportunity to you know uh, do things right and account for the political economy that help us understand a few issues. And let me reflect a bit about how uh, the insight from this paper source book, uh, in my view, can help us uh, guide policy processes. Uh, a key contribution, in my view, of the source book is 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 the guide to analysis resources uh, by following the preferred reporting items for systematic reviews and meta analysis, the Prisma 2020 statement, as well as the different frameworks that are identified. In my view, using this type of reviews and also some of the suggested frameworks can be critical for policy analysts to identify countries' development priorities when, while considering the political economy. And also to use this information to feed up into rigorous quantitative analysis that will inform decision-making. Uh, the identified countries' development priorities could, of course, help policy analysts to present themselves better prepared for a conversation with decision-makers with whom they could validate their prior knowledge on priorities. And this knowledge is key for quantitative analysis. In FAO, for example, we are using a policy optimization modeling tool by which we're helping countries in Sub-Saharan Africa to optimize their budgets in agriculture, specifically to achieve several inclusive agricultural transformation objectives, namely increasing agri-food GDP, increasing jobs of the farm in rural areas, reducing rural poverty, uh, reducing the cost of healthy diets, and many others. And in this tool, these objectives can be weighted to reflect prioritization. And we define these weights by establishing a dialogue with policymakers and keeping in mind the political economy. But we are aware that this conversation may not always be possible. So when this is the case, the type of systematic reviews and the frameworks presented in the paper source book can come very handy to identify priorities before getting 
before generating the quantitative evidence that will inform decision-making. Now, what are some of the FAU experiences uh, on using PEPA evidence and policy engagement? Let me share some of these experiences in the framework of the FAO's Monitoring and Analyzing Food and Agricultural uh, Policies Program, MAFAP, which relate to the PEPA type of evidence and work. One objective of the MAFAP program is to generate evidence that is persuasive enough to trigger policy reforms at country level. And for this to happen, of course, the MAFAP team applies informally many of the concepts referenced in the PEPA source book. For example, identifying policy problems and focusing events, mapping influential actors, understanding their values, beliefs, and narratives to say windows of opportunity to shape reforms with relevant technical work. And this has allowed us to score more than 30 reforms at country level in sub-Saharan African countries. The PEPA source book will help us you know, structure a little bit how we approach these uh, 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 attempts to reform policies at country level. Uh, but some of our technical work as well can also provide valuable information for PEPA. For example, the MAFAC public expenditure data that we have disaggregate budgetary transfers, identifying those going to public goods and services, for example, research extension, and those going to private goods and services, for example, inputs. And this helps us understand how interest groups benefit from targeted transfers of public resources in agriculture, for example, farmers, which can support PEPA. Likewise, the MAFAP team also analyzes price incentives, which helps uh, understand if trade and marketing policies adopted by governments support food producers at the expense of consumers or vice versa. I believe that unveiling which actors in agri-food systems are being incentivized versus those that are not can be an essential aspect of any PEPA uh, uh, on food and agriculture. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Marco. We're finally going to hear from Biniam Ayoub, who is a senior policy advisor at the Feed the Future Office of Policy Analysis and Engagement, as a reminder. Over to you, Biniam. Um. Uh, thank you so much uh, for inviting me to share some insights into how this book on political economy and policy analysis reflects many of USAID's strategic priorities on climate, food security, water, gender equity, and more. Uh, I'll frame my remarks for today in three parts. First, uh, the themes addressed in this source book align very well with the three broad objectives of the U.S. government's uh, global food security strategies or Feed the Future's broad, three broad uh, objectives, which are A, uh, inclusive and sustainable agricultural-led economic growth, uh, B, strengthen resilience among people and systems, and C, uh, well-nourished population, especially among children, uh, among women and children. In particular, this book complements uh, the Global Food Security Strategies Cross-Cutting Intermediate Result 7 on more effective governance, policy, and institutions. Additionally, uh, this source book uh, complements the Strategies 22 Activity Guidances, especially the programming approach for policy system uh, strengthening. Uh, second, uh, similar to the Kenya's agricultural value chain that uh, Dr. Resnick uh, highlighted, uh, USAID has funded um, political economy and policy analysis related activities uh, that I would like to share with you uh, three examples about. Uh, the first example A, A is about uh, USAID Nepal, uh, funded uh, 
the Feed the Future Policy Reform Initiative that ended in 2018. Uh, a number of policy-related assessment and studies were produced. Uh, recommendations from these assessments have helped stakeholders understand the context and role of the agricultural sector to the government of Nepal, private sector, and USAID. The project has helped USAID in designing new activities. B, uh, through uh, funding from USAID Sudan, IFRI recently submitted reports such as on the political economy of wheat and on the architecture of the Sudanese agricultural sector and its contribution to the economy. These reports were useful in informing uh, decisions and programming, uh, in disseminating publications to stakeholders in the country and highlighting specific activities such as on the nitrogen oxide, emissions at the onset of the current conflict in the country and the economic-wide analysis of the conflict, uh, demonstrating the challenges, uh, especially uh, on its uh, food security uh, trajectory. Third, uh, I'd like to provide a brief summation of four examples on how this source book uh, can potentially help us. A, it provides evidence analysis, such as the steps in conducting PEPA on the book, uh, that are useful uh, in policymakers' tasks with making decisions regarding investments, uh, uh, such as on research and development and extension services, uh, which are critical in achieving sustainable uh, development. B, it provides a framework on climate that can help to, to inform our new activities, uh, such as the Comprehensive Action for Climate Change Initiative, CASI, uh, that focuses on nationally determined contributions and national adaptation plans. Uh, C, it provides uh, comparative case studies uh, that may be helpful in assessing pathways to scaling to other countries' successes, such as a nutrition-sensitive uh, irrigation guidance that was provided by the Feed the Future Innovation Lab for small-scale irrigation and IFRI to the World Bank, which used it in Mali based on policy and national context priorities. And D, uh, it provides um, evidence on the role of uh, uh, financial support from national governments to local service providers. For example, on uh, uh, scale appropriate mechanization services as reported extensively by one of the USAID funded projects, such as the uh, uh, Serial Systems Initiative for South Asia, which is called uh, CISA in short. Uh, I'd like to end my comment uh, by saying that this is an important source book a careful reading of its contents uh, provides numerous details that will be appreciated by all of us. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much, Biniam. We'll now have a presentation from Alan Nichol, uh, who is the Principal Researcher in Governance and Inclusion at the International Water Management Institute. And he is also the co-lead for our initiative, National Policies and Strategies. His research is focused on water and development in Asia, with a particular focus on political economy, rural water development, and transboundary river basin management. Over to you, Alan. Thank you so much, Noreen. Um, it's great to be here, and I really want to uh, to uh, celebrate, really, the production and launch of this uh, Pepper source book. It's interesting because... Uh, back in the early 90s, uh, we we worked on political economy tools at SOAS when I was doing my PhD, and we were unpicking some of the knotty conundrums surrounding water policy in the Middle East, such as why have countries not gone into conflict over access to water when there's so much demand and, and so such a little amount of the resource available. And we unpicked those ideas, those wicked problems, 
and identified a, a range of solutions, including the import of food um, and therefore the import of virtual water. So we were using tools in the water sector of political economy analysis all those decades ago. But it's very important to continue to bring these tools together and to provide a really coherent set of analytical approaches in the water sector, in the food sector, and then in the land sector across these systems, because those are, are systems under constant pressure. And what we found, particularly in, in the water world in recent years, is the enormous disruption being caused by climate change on the water systems, creating um, impacts on food systems, impacts on energy systems that we hadn't anticipated. These require really deep understanding of, of the interests at work, the kinds of power and resources uh, that, that authors like uh, Mark Reisner and Cadillac Desert so many years ago said water flows uphill to, to money and power. Understanding how those, those interests have affected allocation of, of water, have affected pricing of, of water, and ultimately have affected availability of water in, in particular uh, transboundary contexts. So the political economy tools that the Pepper Sourcebook can bring to this range of challenges that affect uh, all regions of the world, but particularly areas where there's great water scarcity is so important. What I like to say is also that the, that the mapping of, of policy and understanding the landscape of policy out there is part of the National Policies and Strategies Initiative. And really trying to, to bring together in that analysis how policies develop, the origin stories, if you like, of policies is critically important. The kind of institutional landscape and analysis we're conducting will be enormously enriched by this Pepper source book because it brings together so much of, of the fragmented information out there. So many of the approaches that, that in some ways, uh, I think, as Danielle said, are quite often scattered. And one of the things we're trying to do under NPS and across the CGIR, and of course, more broadly, with our partners in the different countries we're working in, is to ensure that we can strengthen those approaches over time, including sharing important lessons of, of our work with partners in different countries, understanding how those policy contexts, whether it's in Nigeria or Egypt or India or Laos, how those policy contexts shape policy processes and policy outcomes, and ultimately what kind of policy flux is there? How often and why do policies change? You know, what kinds of systemic changes You've heard about the change in administration in Kenya that Daniel mentioned. How, how have those systemic changes triggered policy changes and why are they significant, particularly as we face real challenges of climate resilience and climate adaptation? So for me, it's particularly exciting to see this uh, source book launched. It's really also important to, to maybe focus on that issue, that core issue of political feasibility, because quite often in my career, Doing political economy analysis always poses a question, the so what question. We know those interests are there. We know there are hidden interests as well as revealed interests at work in policy processes. It's complex, it's difficult terrain, and it involves power resources. The so what question is, what do we do with that analysis? And I think that whole question of political feasibility, unblocking challenges to policy implementation, supporting more equitable policy engagement, creating policies that are perhaps more focused on those mo most in need, the most vulnerable, are really critical criteria and areas that we want to, to apply this source book to. So I think that the, the PEPA um, 
you know, the, the book is there, the, the source book is there, the range of materials that we need are there. It's all about the implementation now. And I think those last two comments, those last two speakers have really hit the nail on the head, bringing this into the work of, of agencies and governments and other partners in civil society is really critical now. And I look forward to helping to do that. And uh, I'm sure it will be a very fruitful period of, of research for development ahead, driven by the Pepper Sourcebook. Thank you, Noreen, back to you. Thank you so much, Alan, much appreciated. So we're now going to take questions from the audience. So remember to type your message into the chat box and I'll direct your message to the appropriate speaker. And in that vein, please note which speaker you'd like to direct the question to. So we have one question right now for Antonia. And the question is from Francois Stepman. How can political economy and overcoming some barriers be reflected in the biannual CAADP progress reports. I actually don't know what CAADP means. So Antonia, if you could give us that acronym before you answer. Thank you. That's the CADAP, AU CADAP programs. Okay, I also don't know. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Yes, I, I, I also don't know the acronym, but somebody was trying to explain. It's the it's the CADAP program of the African Union, the Comprehensive African Agricultural Development Program. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Danielle. And please, uh, all the speakers, feel free to uh, turn your cameras back on. Okay, let me do that. Okay, so I'll just say that um, um, what would apply to the Nigerian situation is the same thing that we can use for uh, other African countries and um, the African Union in general. And the general point is that we it is important that before policies are made, uh, I think PEPA allows us to uh, examine uh, situations in which we can say what can work, not what is good to work. We must examine the circumstance, the environment of each uh, uh, place, each country, each uh, situation, before we we try to maybe dump in quotes um, the new policy that is going to be implemented, it's, it shouldn't be about what is good. It is it should be more about what can work, taking the environment uh, into consideration. And I think that as long as we uh, the utility of paper is in adopting this kind of approach. What is the situation there? What are the relationships? What are the uh, interests and all of that that uh, can affect uh, any uh, policy that is going to be implemented? And once is, this is done, it might be much, we might have a bit more success in what we do. Thank you. Thank you so much, Antonia. And I actually could not agree more. The next question is for Danielle. 
Um, so not all dimensions of political economy are welcomed by policymakers. Are there certain political economy issues that get more receptivity by policymakers than others? Um, yeah, I think from my experience, issues that are more focused on how the public administration works get a little bit more receptivity, receptivity than than other questions. Um, you know, if you talk about, you know, if subsidies are being used for, you know, maybe vote buying, that's not going to get much traction or reform. But if you talk about some of the um, incentive structures within maybe the public sector that are mm -hmm. inhibiting reform or perhaps, um, you know, creating frictions amongst different different ministries that tends to get a little bit more traction because it is a little bit more on the the technical governance side than the kind of hardcore um, political side um, and in those cases what you what's often useful to do is as Alan was noting um, as well as taking examples from other contexts um, that's often welcome. So saying, you know, country X also was facing this political economy issue within the public administration. They tackled it by doing X, Y, and Z. Um, and it gives a, a feeling that this is not something specific of this country. They don't feel, policymakers don't feel targeted in any sense. Um, and it gives a sense of, of learning of what works and what doesn't work. Um, and that was actually the case that uh, we we did in, in Nepal that Biniam alluded to when we were looking at uh, reform of the agricultural sector in the wake of their uh, constitutional reforms from a, a unitary to a federal structure. Um, we, we kind of focused on what are kind of the institutional political economy issues that might emerge and took some lessons learned from other cases, including Kenya, um, to help inform the Nepali government. Thank you so much. Yeah, this is a an issue that I've often wondered about uh, myself. Uh, the next question is for Jonathan. Uh, so you talked about the micro simulation toolbook. Could you elaborate on that, please? Yeah, great. Thanks, Noreen. Um, so that's um, an add-on to the Pepper Source book. So basically what we've done with the micro simulation tool, um, the, it's still in the design phase, but currently it's built on the six steps um, of paper in terms of how to conduct paper analysis. And basically the idea of this is to be able to reduce the amount of time um, that we spend, um, not ruling out that researchers and development partners and sometimes our stakeholders need quick information with regards to a certain policy and wants to make a decision. So based on this, the idea is to have an alternative to the mainstream type of analysis we'll do, uh, which sometimes could take a couple of uh, weeks or months to do and reduce this to days. And in this case, you'll be able to feed in a specific research problem, um, come up with a specific question. Based on that question, you'll be able to look for which frameworks will fit to answering that question. And then you are given a step-by-step -step guide with regards to first, how you can apply the framework, how you can apply the analytical tool, and then which type of the data you need to synthesize and how to package mm -hmm. that policy decision-making. So there is an um, AI algorithm behind it. And the idea is to be able to train this further with uh, both secondary and data sources. So I'd say um, it's something interesting and would um, really help to uh, change how we conduct paper analysis and particularly responding to policy decision um, in a very quick fashion. Wow, that is incredibly helpful, that tool. And I'll say right now, 
I plan to use it in my impact evaluation work. So thank you for producing this additional really valuable resource. Um, the next question is for Jamie. How can subnational levels of government be linked through food systems processes? Um, do we still have Jamie online? Um, Jamie has left. Oh, okay. Uh, well, on to the next question. Um, oh, you can't unmute. Oh, um, um, Michael, do you have any ideas? You're the tech whiz. Okay, does that work now? Yes. Yeah, sorry, I got a message saying cannot unmute yourself. Um, but since I am, I guess the, the camera might be working as well. It's yes, you're back. Okay, yeah, sorry about that. Okay, yeah, so I think, yeah, in relation to, to um, can some of these insights be used at the, the more global level? I think, yeah, we do see very similar political economy constraints to improve coherence across global agreements but also in their translation from the global level down to the national level. So if you think about global agreements, I mean, essentially they create a framework within which governments could design and implement policy. And what we're seeing is that in many of the cases, the existing frameworks, yeah, take for example, the WTO agreement on agriculture, reflect a state of the, the global economy, which is quite different um, to where we find ourselves today. So there is an urgent need particularly with this focus on food system transformation and the trade-offs trade -offs that it throws up between different sectors, um, both to renegotiate these agreements, but also to ensure that they're much more coherent across agriculture, nutrition, health, environment, climate, labor, et cetera. Um, but as we've seen, and that's also reflected at the, the national level, negotiations reflect vested interests and existing power relationships within rule-setting institutions. And it's proved to be very difficult and in many cases impossible, again, look at the WTO agreement on agriculture, to foster significant reforms in these agreements that deliver real change. And I think, yeah, it's that understanding of vested interests, existing power relations and how they work really needs to be unpicked in order to effectively support the renegoti renegotiation of a number of these different global agreements. Thank you. Thank you, Jamie. That's really interesting to hear. Uh, it's not an, <laughs> not an easy task. Um, so the next question um, is for Jonathan. Um, and there are actually two. So uh, one is for Jonathan, one is for Jonathan and Danielle, so we'll make this quick. Um, so Jonathan, how can we include some policy actors into the policy analysis so that there's ownership in the transformation? No, definitely. Um, for policy analysis, we cannot ignore the policy actors. Um, they need to be key stakeholders. 
And quite often in terms of policy analysis and policy processes, um, the analysis is with the policy actors who are engaged in everyday policy making. So for example, if it's with the Ministry of um, Agriculture in Nigeria, um, we go and work with these key actors who are involved um, in the policy process. So uh, by interviewing them, by understanding the conditions that are important, and we are able to provide um, the policy options that are important for the policy processes, um, throughout the policy processes. Great, thank you, that was insightful. Um, so Francois actually has another question, and this is for both you and Danielle. Um, how does PEPA help set scenarios for priority setting in agricultural investments? Well, um, I can start first. Um, uh, I think in terms of it's not it's not really going to be able to to set the priority for the investment. I think it can help contextualize whether that priority is going to be politically feasible. So um, that's when I was alluding to some of the the work that we've been doing, um, thinking about we have kind of our first best option in terms of this priority is going to generate the greatest poverty reduction, the greatest job creation, the greatest growth, et cetera. Um, but it's may never be implemented and therefore it's not, it's not worthwhile. So it's kind of, uh, it's not going to be for that type of question. It's not going to be in the driving seat. It's going to be a complementary tool in terms of saying, given what we think from a, a cost benefit approach about prioritization, um, you know, investments in this area are going to be key. Um, what do we need to then have on the political and the institutional side in order to actually realize those investments? Um, so it's thinking about how do you either calibrate to the existing uh, political economy context, or how do you catalyze the political economy context in order to get to those those uh, you know first priorities that you want to get. And we we need to decide where we want to invest the time if we want to uh, contextualize to what we have, or if we want to actually make those complementary investments in you know public sector reforms as well um, to to make those priorities uh, occur and meaningful. Okay, thank you so much. Um, to me, this is a really important question. So I'm going to take the chair's advantage and uh, just ask one more question. Um, and this question is for Marco. Marco, do you see the PEPA joining with the FAO country level processes? And very briefly, and then I'll close. Thank you. Why not? Why not? Actually, uh, it, it shows that there is a lot out to learn out there right that we are not considering but our tools have a space to consider so in prioritizing for example like the cultural transformation objectives which are many there is a there is a lot of political economy behind how to prioritize them how to have the conversation with the policy makers is something that we could structure very way very well if we follow the pepa source book approaches right so i'm definitely answering very easily yes of course i'm, I'm here to 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 collaborate with, with the authors and, and, and look forward to hearing from them on this. Fantastic, thank you, Marco. So this has been a very exciting seminar and I'm really happy to see that all of our speakers are very excited about the PEPA source book and indeed plan to use it. As we close, I have a lot of thank yous, but we'll keep them brief. So first I'd like to thank Jonathan and Danielle and their co-authors our panelists for the thought-provoking remarks and for sharing your insights and experiences. 
and to Michael Goh and Joanna Cruz for their help today. We would also especially like to thank, of course, the CGIAR funders that support the National Policies and Strategies Initiative. So the next steps here are to, one, scale up the co-creation of PEPA-based analysis in partner countries to improve policy coherence, and two, to integrate the PEPA-based tools in the national think tanks and as part of university curricula, which is a very exciting development. Finally, thank you everyone for joining us and for the lively discussion. And I hope everyone enjoys the rest of their day or evening as the case may be. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.